Stay tuned to acure.org for the latest updates on the world's only conference dedicated to cardiac unloading and heart recovery, acure.org. You're listening to Heart Sounds, TCTMD's award-winning podcast hosted by Shelley Wood. Hello and welcome to the Heart Sounds podcast for February 2024. This is the podcast where I recap some of the top news in cardiology from the months gone by and, where possible, let you listen in on some of the interviews the TCTMD reporters did while pulling together those top stories. We are wrapping up a busy February which saw one high-profile clinical trial come up empty-handed, the FDA make a surprise announcement, and a less surprising FDA advisory panel vote, as well as some meeting dispatches from my hardworking team. Todd Neal was at the International Stroke Congress in Phoenix earlier this month, and Yael Maxwell was home sweet home from the Society for Thoracic Surgery meeting in San Antonio, Texas. That was at the tail end of January, but she was filing many of those stories well into the first week or so of February. Let's get started. Probably the biggest surprise news this month was the FDA's announcement, on a Friday of course, that it was approving the Evoke transcatheter tricuspid valve replacement device made by Edwards Life Sciences. Many people, myself included, had been expecting the FDA to schedule an advisory committee to review the Evoke device either the day before or after the committee convened to review the data for Abbott's TriClip, that is the edge-to-edge -edge repair device, which was scheduled for February 13th. Nope. Instead, the FDA skipped that step, and just three months after the presentation of early favorable data from the TriSen2 trial, the agency cleared the device for patients with severe tricuspid regurgitation. Keep in mind, so far we've only seen six-month results in fewer than half of the patients in TriSen2. But in those 150 patients, the device significantly improved TR grade and led to meaningful improvements in functional status and symptoms. Announcing the FDA's surprise decision, Edwards said that one-year follow-up has now been completed in 318 of the 392 randomized patients, and that investigators are seeing, quote, favorable trends in the device group compared to the control group in the primary composite endpoints, including all-cause mortality, tricuspid intervention, heart failure hospitalization, KCCQ, NYHA, and six-minute walk distance. We will get more insights on the full 392 patients at TCT 2024 this fall. Laura McEwen covered the surprise approval for TCTMD and she spoke with TriSend2 co-lead investigator Rebecca Hahn of New York Presbyterian Columbia University Irving Medical Center, who characterized today's approval as a tremendous win for patients, adding, The TriSend2 and the Triluminate Pivotal Trials are a testament to how many patients there are out there that are suffering and in need of therapy. Laura also spoke with Neil Pham of the University of Toronto, Ontario. He admitted that he, too, was taken back by the approval. Here's part of what Dr. Pham had to say to Laura. It's great news. It's really going to allow effective and, and durable treatment of TR. So, you know, the difference between TTVR with evoke, valve replacement versus repair with CLIPS is that, you know, 95% of the time you eliminate PR. And if the PR is the cause of the patient's symptoms, then they feel that much better. That's definitely been our experience. You know, we had the 
privilege to do the first one in the world back in 2019. So it's mm-hmm. been almost five years. And since that, you know, there's been more than a thousand patients treated. And our outcomes of these patients are almost always predictable. It's a very safe procedure. There are some limitations to all TTBRs, including Evoke, uh, which are well known, such as the risk of uh, heart block and pacemaker. But these things will be sorted out just uh, as they were eventually for Tavi. So I think this is great news for patients with TR. The Evoke news, as I mentioned, was not the only big win for tricuspid valve disease this month. TCTMD's Michael O'Reardon sat through the long FDA advisory panel I mentioned earlier for the TriClip device. Now, the FDA does not need to follow the advice of its advisors, but in my two decades of writing about this stuff, it is pretty rare when it doesn't. As Mike reported, by the end of the day, the Circulatory System Devices panel took an overwhelmingly favorable stance on this T-tier device. Members voted 13 to 1 that the benefits of TriClip outweighed the risks for use in patients who meet the proposed indication criteria. And they voted 12 to 2 that TriClip was effective and 14 to 0 that there were reasonable assurances the device was safe. Interventional cardiologist James Blankenship of the University of New Mexico in Albuquerque was one of the votes in favor of the device. Here's how he described his decision making. So for safety, I I did not mention it before, but I tried to compare the one ear adverse events for TriClip to those for the Evoke valve and MitraClip, and they're in the same ballpark. I think there, there was consensus that the safety of it is pretty well established, so I voted yes on safety. In terms of efficacy, again, I think an improvement in patient-perceived outcomes is very important. Uh, that's why we, we do lots of other procedures, and uh, so I think it's a very important endpoint, and it was proven to be statistically significantly beneficial there. And so I think that since the safety uh, seems proven and the efficacy is definitely positive, that the benefit-risk ratio favors improving it. Paul Hauptman of the University of Nevada in Reno, however, was one of the lone dissenters, voting no on efficacy and no on the benefit-risk question. Here's part of what Dr. Hauptman had to say. I voted yes on safety. I think that was very, very clear. I voted no on question two. I just felt the the need to pull back a little bit on unbridled enthusiasm, because I think we have a responsibility to better understand who's going to benefit, and that needs better definition. You know, we don't know anything about patients in normal sinus rhythm, at least not in the U.S. study, or the whole issue with low volume centers or patients with significant LV dysfunction, 25%, 30%, because the indication as written is agnostic on that. So from that standpoint, I might have voted otherwise with a, a somewhat different indication statement. Um, I still am troubled by the fact that there was no change in diuretics. There, were, there was no consistent story with biomarkers. Uh, the imaging data is encouraging. So at the end of the day, I ended up being the sole dissenting vote on number three. I would encourage the agency to take a very critical look at the continued access protocol at one year, because I suspect that those data could tip the scales, at least in my mind, and shore up what, what we know from the main cohort in this study.
It might have been Valentine's Day, but February 14th was also the day we learned that the Aegis II trial had no love for the HDL hypothesis. According to top-line results of the Phase 3 Aegis II trial, CSL-112, which is an investigational cholesterol efflux enhancer developed using human plasma-derived apolipoprotein A1, had failed to reduce the risk of 90-day MACE after acute MI. As a result, said the drugmaker CSL, there are no plans for a near-term regulatory filing. As Todd Neal reported for TCTMD, those negative results deal yet another blow to the hypothesis that raising HDL cholesterol levels will reduce cardiovascular events, an idea that really has not panned out in the past. Aegis II investigators enrolled more than 18,000 patients with acute MI from more than 850 sites in 49 countries. All were randomized to four weekly infusions of CSL-112, or to placebo, started within five days of first medical contact. By 90 days, however, while there were no safety concerns, there were also no differences in major adverse cardiac events. C. Michael Gibson of the Brigham and Women's Hospital is slated to present the trial at the upcoming American College of Cardiology 2024 scientific session in Atlanta in April. I don't have any audio for that bit of news, but happily Todd has another story worth highlighting in this month's recap. This was a story looking at how cardiologists and others are dealing with the semaglutide shortage in the wake of select and amid the explosive demand for this drug. I will let you search some maglutide shortage on TCTMD to find that one, but for a teaser, here is part of Todd's conversation with Darren McGuire of UT Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas. He offered some tips to physicians trying to switch their patients from one injectable therapy to another. Here are some of McGuire's words of warning. Some people have some vomiting, but some GI symptoms, and they're real, but they go away. And so it's really important that we start at a very low dose, wait until all the GI symptoms go away, and then titrate. And typically, we're doing it once every four weeks. So it, it, you know, it takes some time to get to the maximum dose. So when we switch from semaglutide to any of the other injectables, we're tending to start at the low dose again. So it forces us to go through the titration period again with the new, new medication. I think some people have the misconception that if you're tolerating the maximum dose of semaglutide, you can go straight to the maximum dose of the alternative. And, and we found when we try to do that, typically people have pretty limiting GI symptoms, sometimes to the point of intolerance. We have been covering the SDS meetings since before COVID times because we know many of our cardiology readers just aren't going to be traveling to a surgery meeting, and there is so much interesting work being done in the cardiothoracic surgery space. This year, Yael Maxwell filed stories on multi-arterial grafting in cabbage, heart transplant volumes and outcomes, and a host of different TAVI and SAVR stories, including an analysis of five-year outcomes among patients in the Partner 3 trial who had isolated SAVR versus SAVR plus concomitant surgeries. If you are in the structural heart field or having conversations with your patients about options for aortic valve procedures, you'll definitely want to check out Yael's coverage. The one I'm going to highlight here was an analysis of the types of procedures being done in California for patients with aortic stenosis under the age of 60. As I probably do not need to remind you, both U.S. and European guidelines for this disease, 
currently recommend surgery over percutaneous valve replacement for patients under age 65. That is due to the fact that patients under 65 were excluded from the major randomized trials in this space, not to mention outstanding questions about durability in younger patients who are expected to live for several more decades. Jad Malas of Cedars-Sinai Medical Center in Los Angeles presented this analysis at STS. The study included over 2,300 patients aged 60 or younger who underwent TAVI or SAVR between 2013 and 2021 and were included in the California State Discharge Administrative Database. As Malas told a plenary session at STS, there were significant differences between the two groups. Those undergoing TAVI were less likely to be getting an elective procedure and were generally sicker whereas those getting surgery were more likely to have bicuspid aortic valves. Over the study period, researchers saw TAVI use increase by about 5% annually, despite surgery being the guideline-recommended procedure for patients in this age group. In 2021, 45.7% of patients had received a TAVI valve. What's more, in a propensity score-matched analysis of 358 patient pairs, five-year survival was significantly greater for those who underwent SAVR compared with TAVI. There were no differences, however, in five-year rates of reintervention, stroke, infective endocarditis, or heart failure readmission. Now, you don't need to tell me. There are lots of limitations to this kind of analysis, as Yael's story carefully points out. But there is a lot of food for thought here as well, as Dr. Malas told Yael after his talk. Here is part of that conversation. Myself, personally, if I was a patient, obviously the idea of getting a puncture in the groin is much more appealing short-term than having your chest opened and having open-heart surgery. But I think what these patients are lacking when they come to the clinic asking for a TAVR valve in their 30, 40 years is they don't understand that we can perform this operation so safely. You know, you look at operative mortality, less than 1% in those types of patients. You look at 5, 10-year survival, over 95% in these patients. And that's something that gets lost on them because they're scared. They're, yeah. they're obviously scared, and they have every right to be scared. You know? But it's our duty as surgeons to counsel them and to show them the data, let them know that we know that we can offer them this, sur this surgery with minimal risk and long-term outcome. There is lots more interesting news on TCTMD this month, of course. Endovascular folks, please do delve into Todd's coverage of the International Stroke Congress, as well as Caitlin Cox's coverage of ICIT, some of which spilled over into this month. All of our meeting reporting, including news, slides, and videos, including our Beyond the Data video series by Dr. Mamas Mamas, can be found under our conference tab with videos appearing in our video center. February, of course, is Heart Month, and Caitlin Cox has been tackling some of the Go Red for Women spotlight coverage that the American Heart Association releases at this time of year. I hope you'll check that out. I'm going to end today on a more somber note, which is that I ended up writing a tribute to Alain Cribier, who died earlier this month. About a week later, I sat down with Martin Leon of Columbia University to hear some of his stories and recollections about the man who dreamed up the idea for transcatheter aortic valve replacement. Dr. Leon had formed that early company PVT with Dr. Cribier way back in the late 1990s. 
My conversation with Dr. Leon lasted probably half an hour, and in the end, I opted to transcribe and edit that with his input in order to run this in his own words as an off script on TCTMD. I will leave you now with a bit of my conversation with Dr. Leon to take us out to the end of this month's episode. Thanks, as always, for tuning in to Heart Sounds. I visited him on, on a number of occasions, and he would always play. Hmm. Yeah, he loved playing. Yeah. He was a bit of a ham. But at least ham what do you mean by a ham? Like he would play off his... He would, yes, he would love to perform. Okay. Um, and, hmm. and to a certain extent, what he did in the cath lab was a way of performing. Right. Um, because you can see in his tone, in his movements, and the way he thinks, that you know, he had that very precise but very creative approach right. that a musician might have. Sure, terms. the practice and then the performance. Exactly, mm. yes, yes. And being intuitive, I think great musicians have a certain sense of bringing their own creativity to a piece, even yeah. though it's written on a page. Yeah, no, they, they bring the they, emotion to the score. Kind the of way thing. they do it, yes. And he, he brought great emotion to whatever he did uh, in medicine. So I think the two side by side work very well with him. So for those who never get the chance to meet him, what would you like them to know about him? Well, I think that you know, this juxtaposition of passion, perseverance, creativity, uh, and humility is unusual on a person. And I think he was a very unusual individual. It's, it's, an, it's an honor to know someone like that and to call him a friend. Um, we we um, were a good team because he was the test pilot. He was going to try all those new and crazy things. And I was the person who was going to kind of bring him back down to earth. You know, I would always tell him that we've got to get the evidence yeah. to convince the world we have to do clinical studies. We have to, I, I think at times he was impatient with me that, that you know, I wanted to surround his, his invention with enough data where the rest of the world would accept it.